When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where members of the historical community take up their swords on the righteous quest to right the wrongs. The podcast where we call a holy war on historical misconceptions. I am public historian Paul Bavel and I'm here with my ever-loyal co-host, fellow historian, now back from his own jaunt to the Mediterranean, Kyle Glover. Hello, yes, and there were quite a few Crusader connections whilst I was there, but perhaps we'll get into that a bit later. Perhaps we will. Little hint there as to what's coming up. Well, this week, dear listener, we go further back in time. We're going to the early medieval period and the time of holy wars and power struggles. And to do this, we welcome historian, author, and presenter of the Condensed Histories podcast, Jem Daduchu. Jem, welcome to History Rage. Thank you for having me and thank you for letting me rant. Excellent. I am looking forward to some righteous fury with God on your side. Now, I've followed you on Facebook via your excellent page, History Gems, for for some years now, and I've always really liked the fresh take that you give out in your articles, which is what inspired me to try and drag you kicking and screaming onto History Rage. But for our other listener, if you would uh, please tell us a little bit about you, your work, and kind of how you ended up where you are. So I I think this is the marvellous thing that with social media – I'm I'm a man in my 40s, and I I have a degree in archaeology and medieval history, which meant that when I left university in the 1990s, apart from reading history books, there was nowhere to share my love, and I got into a proper Mm -hmm. job. But then in the sort of like 2000s, it's like I could share my love of history, and that's how I created History Gems, and you know it's got over sort of 90,000 subscribers. Thank you very much for everybody who does that. But what's always interesting is – just because I post something does not mean all 90,000 people actually see it. And what I find really interesting is over the years, particularly during the pandemic when everybody was locked down, but I have never quite understood why people get fur- I get furious at people doing making the wrong connections in history. That's a different thing. Mm. Uh, and we'll, I'm sure we'll be coming on to that in a bit. <laughs> but the thing that I don't understand is why people get angry that something happened. Because no matter how angry you are that that thing happened, 
it happened and it still happened at the end of your rant. And, <laughs> and, and the thing that I, I, I don't know if you've even noticed this, Paul, but I used to occasionally do American history. I just don't do it anymore because I'll write about something about George Washington and I'll get stuff going. Oh, it's the same today. No, it is. It's not even remotely the same as the 1700s. Okay. So, so it's these huge leaps of logic by idiots who find these sort of like passing very surface similarities and then off they go on their merry dance. And it's, it's absolutely the worst with American history. We've just had actually, well, while you bring that up on our YouTube channel, we did a video some time ago uh, called the curse of the salt Peterman um, about how they could come and trash your house looking for saltpeter and things like that. It was like a short 10 minute video. It's probably one of the more popular ones that we've put onto YouTube, but there was a comment literally yesterday that just went, well, just like now, big government goes too far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, God, no. And as you mentioned YouTube, so I used to years and years and years ago, actually, there is an at History Gems uh, channel on YouTube. Uh, please don't bother looking at it because <laughs> I, I think the last thing that was posted was five years ago. And I was just basically mucking around with my phone. But the only one of my vid- most videos have got like 150 views. But the one that's got over 100,000 views is my one on the Crusades. And just the comments underneath it are moronic uh, and, and vicious as well. Really vicious, both towards me and towards history and pretty much uh, sort of Islamophobic as well. It's just, uh, you know, awful. Well, it's good that you bring that up, actually, because I know that Crusades is going to be uh, the main focus of the rant that we've got today. So so let's dive right into that rage then, Jem. Please with all the emotion that you feel is warranted in this direction, would you please tell us and our listener base what you wish people would just stop believing and get over? Okay. The most important thing is if you study the Middle Ages, you have to get into the mindset of somebody in the Middle Ages. You get people saying, oh, well, you know, it wasn't about religion. It was about money. It can be about both. And uh, in in the modern world after nine eleven, the amount of literature, both uh, in the in the UK, but particularly in America, saying it's a clash of civilizations like the Crusades. It's like you don't understand the Crusades uh, during the in the first Gulf War. This is the nineteen nineties. Yep. Um, somebody was comparing the invasion of Iraq with the Fifth Crusade which, you know, the two periods are separated by, uh, just off the top of my head, about 700 years, completely different technology on completely different continents, led by a completely different uh, sort of like chain of command for completely different reasons. But yeah, apart from that, I suppose yeah. they're the same. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely idiotic. That was in Time magazine, which is a pretty reasonable uh, magazine, but it just shows that Ooh, sand. Ooh, Muslims. Ooh, it's the same as the Crusades. No, it isn't. It's like comparing, comparing World War II to the Battle of Hastings. You know, they both involve, involve France and Britain. And that's the, that here endeth the similarities. Yeah. <laughs> Good Lord. Good Lord. That was, that was a release there. Do you feel better for that? I, I do, I do. Uh, we, again, um, I mean, look, to, to give you sort of like a modern comparison, there was a U.S. military contractor that was uh, making gun sights for uh, American military equipment, rifles, firearms, mm-hmm. etc. 
And people realized that written on these gun sites were what looked like initially like a, an item code, like, you know, uh, you know, something for the item. But when people looked at them closely, it was actually abbreviations of various verses from the Bible because the manufacturer was a fundamental Christian and knew that these sites would invariably be used in places like Iraq and Afghanistan and was hoping that, you know, as you look down the site and you're seeing the sort of the biblical code there, you're somehow, I don't know, converting the Muslims. There was, uh, if you think that's insane, the British in the 1700s, early 1700s, if you don't believe me, you can do your research on this, there was the Puckle Gun. It was a very early attempt at a machine gun. Basically, it was a gun with a, 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 a circular m- a magazine of bullets. But what made the Puckle Gun unique is you changed the ammunition depending on who you were shooting at. If you were shooting against Christian Europeans, you fired the regular ammunition. But if you're fighting against the Muslims, you had to load the square ammunition because apparently that would cause more pain to those pesky infidels. In the end, the technology didn't quite work. And as one wag at the time said, the only people who are going to be injured by this are the people who invest in this enterprise. So it was never a standard (laughs) weapon. But uh, the Puckle Gun is an early example of uh, Christian fundamentalism trying to fight Muslims. So... I'm getting the vibe then, basically, that the Crusades are much more complex than than Christians wanting to beat the hell out of Muslims and Muslims wanting to stop Christians beating the hell out of them. So just for, and I'm particularly because we've got quite a lot of modern historians on here um, in our listener base. Could you tell us, actually, first of all, what a crusade is, how they're called, how they're caused, how they work? So broadly, and this is the thing. If you're going to understand the Middle Ages in Europe and the Middle East, you can't ignore the Crusades. They went on for more than 200 years in multiple locations. And therefore, to sweep them to one side would be like to try and understand modern Britain without going, but yeah, but we're not going to talk about football. It's like, well, football is there whether you like it or not. Although, you know, a lot of more people died in the Crusades. But the to keep it straightforward, what had to happen was the Pope had to declare that a crusade was going to happen. And first things first, again, getting into the mindset of somebody from the Middle Ages, if you're a knight, you were aware of the the Bible and you're aware of the fundamental rules of the Bible, one of which is thou shalt not kill. But if I'm a knight, that's my job to kill. So there was always a slightly dirty, grubby business around it. So if you have the Pope saying, that if you undertake this incredibly arduous, and it was an arduous and difficult journey to the Holy Land, and if you fight for the name of, of Jesus Christ, you are guaranteed, win, lose, or draw, you are guaranteed a place in heaven after this. How could you say no to something like that? People genuinely lived in fear of their soul. The reason why Europe is covered in these big religious buildings, be they monasteries, cathedrals, or churches, is because it was all these rich people donating money, substantial amounts of money mm-hmm. to these places so that they would pray for them and hopefully get them to heaven. So it's this papal indulgence of crusade that was really important. And there was a, something called a papal bull raised, which allowed the other thing about crusades is they're phenomenally, fantastically expensive. And mm-hmm. so it was a special dispensation for rulers of various lands to say, okay, You can raise money, but you can only spend it on going on crusades. To give you an idea of how expensive it was and how important crusades are to uh, English history, 
is William the Conqueror, everybody knows he conquered England. But what most people don't know is when he died, he actually cut, cut up his lands. He gave his eldest son, uh, he gave his eldest son, uh, Robert, sorry, my, my brain just froze there for a second, Robert, uh, he gave him his ancestral lands. You think he'd give him the Kingdom of England? No, he gave him the Duke of Normandy. You know, that's where we all came from, Rob. Yeah, that's where you own. And his second son, William, uh, becomes King of England. Then, so this all happens in the 1080s. Then in the 1090s, we get the call to crusade. Robert wants to go on crusade. And it's so expensive that Robert mortgages the whole Duchy of Normandy to his brother, the King of England. That's the only person who can pay for that mortgage. And then Robert goes off and he goes on the first crusade. And on the way back, as he's coming back, the third son, Henry, let's not get too complicated. It seems he allowed his his brother, the King of England, to get assassinated. So William II dies. Henry becomes king. Robert's not back yet. So, hey, I'm going to also become Duke of Normandy. So you can see how if the crusade hadn't have happened, this whole Norman Anglo aristocracy would have been completely different, but it actually allowed the rejoining of the Norman lands and the England, English lands. So that's just one example of how much history was changed by the, the Crusades and shows you how complex it was. It continued after the traditional period of uh, crusading. To give you another example, this whole thing about you get a get into heaven free card in return for yeah. doing something violent in something called Regens in Excelsis, which is where basically we're now into the Protestant era. Queen Elizabeth I was seen as a heretic to the Catholics. And so this uh, this papal diktat of Regens in Excelsis was saying, if you assassinate the Queen of England, it's the same as going on crusade. You get to go to heaven. So we're going from huge military enterprises going off to lots of different lands, and we'll come on to where they went in a bit, I'm sure. But we, we're now down to just grubby little assassinations and, and that shows you how far that it's, it's fallen down. And to give you the final bit on when did crusades happen and not happen, the last time a pope put out one of these papal decrees to say you can raise taxes for a crusade was during the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s. So yeah, it, that's 1936, yes, isn't it? Yes, there are people still alive today who technically have been on crusade. Good Lord. Good Lord. I did not see that coming. So, just taking into that then, um, you know, why why would the Pope call a crusade? Well, it was a bit of a novelty. Exactly why he decided to call a, for the first crusade, uh, it, it, nobody knows for sure. Nobody knows what was going on in his mind. Best guess seems to be that the Byzantine Empire, this is the rump of the Eastern Roman Empire, that by that time basically ruled Greece, Bulgaria, and modern-day Turkey. They basically went to the Pope. We know that there was a meeting and they seem to have basically said, look, you send over some of these heavy knights and, you know, we'll give you money. We don't know for a fact it was all secretive. But the, again, this idea that so what they were actually called at the time, Crusaders did not call themselves Crusaders. They called themselves pilgrims. But the thing yeah. about pilgrims and why pilgrims were given safe passage across the whole of Europe and on into the Middle East usually is because they were always unarmed. So to have an armed pilgrimage is an oxymoron in its own rights, like killing for yeah. God. So there was this huge um, uh, Council of Clermont, 1096, uh, Clermont in France, just the whole crowd was ecstatic. They were alleged to have chanted, we don't know this for a fact, but it's written down that they chanted, God wills it, which is where you get the phrase Deus Volt, because that's in Latin. Yeah. 
But the first thing that happened, as I said, it's fabulously expensive. Also, they wanted professional soldiers, the knights of Europe, to go out east. So the poor peasants didn't have an option. So we want to help God. Where are some infidels around here? Oh, hang on. And yes, sadly, one of the first things that happened after the decree of the First Crusade, which was not meant to happen, this is not what the Pope wanted to happen, but it did happen across Europe, but particularly in Germany, was the attacks on local Jewish populations. So we've got one of the first sort of pogroms against Jews happening because of the First Crusade, showing again, this is a lot more complicated than Muslims and Jews, fight, sorry, Muslims and Christians fighting each other. So uh, apart from the Pope, the man himself, um, who are the major players in actually organising and bringing about a crusade? And then not only that, but actually getting it through to the other side. Okay, so the 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 uh, on the on the Christian side, um, the reason why the first crusade was so successful is because kings didn't go. On other crusades, kings go, but if they go to the Holy Land, everybody knows fundamentally they're also going to go back home to their kingdom. But everybody who went on the first crusade were like the second son of, third son of, or, you know, illegitimate son of. And so when they got to the Holy Land, they stayed, which is how they set up these sort of, uh, the outremer, these sort of the outer lands, uh, these sort of the, these four areas of, of Christian mm-hmm. influence in, in the Middle East and a little bit beyond. Uh, and so, yeah, they, who, who doesn't want to become king of Jerusalem? That's, that's a pretty cool title. Beats anybody in Europe, basically. So basically the, the Pope kicks it off. And then some people kind of organically get involved. Like I said, uh, in, uh, particularly uh, in the Second and Third Crusades, you've got kings of France and, and England getting involved. And in the Third Crusade, you also have the uh, the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick Barbarossa going off on that. He he was a prince in the Second Crusade, and he was an old man on the Third Crusade. And he was such an old man that he actually fell into a river and drowned on the way to the Third Crusade, which is why he never made it to the Middle East and why most of the German contingent went home. Again, if he hadn't have drowned, Richard the Lionheart would have been a bit player in the Third Crusade. But because the emperor had drowned, Richard gets to be a big deal in, in the Third Crusade. But um, so that's all on the, the Western side. On the Eastern side, and the reason why the First Crusade worked so well was sheer blind luck. In the East, in the Middle East, there was a power vacuum. So you didn't have a centralized authority who could push back these these Christian invaders. If there was, no doubt the First Crusade would have been stopped dead in Anatolia, and that's the end of that idea. And throughout the whole of the time in the Middle East, there were uh, crusades are available in other locations. Uh, the, mm-hmm. the point is that they, for for about a hundred years, the Muslims were actually quite disparate and were you know were broken up. So you could attack, uh, you know, the Emir of, of Damascus, and you could attack. Yeah, Kilij Arslan, who was the sort of like the Turkic warlord of, of central Anatolia. And they, they weren't talking to each other. So you were just attacking bit at a time, piecemeal at a time until you get somebody like Saladin who starts unifying through conquest all these Muslim areas. And now suddenly there's a yeah. lot more resource on the Muslim side. But again, we tend to see in the West as, and he, this is the way he sold himself. Uh, Saladin is this great Muslim warrior fighting against the Christians. He spent more time in his career fighting other Muslim powers because he wanted to conquer them and run them than he ever spent fighting the Christians. Now, I'm not being clever here and saying, oh, he never fought the Christians. He absolutely did. And he absolutely did a very good job of conquering Christian cities. But he actually spent more time fighting Muslims. So what he is, is a completely practical leader. It's the same with the Christians. Yes. You've got someone like Richard the Lionheart. Yes, of course, he's fighting in the Middle East. Oh, good, King Richard. 
but he's also fighting in France against the French and they're not Muslim. So, you know, you just fight who you can get away with, basically. Yeah, who, who you can who you can steamroll over, take all their stuff and, and the Pope doesn't excommunicate you. You're on to a win, really, aren't yes. you? Yes. Cool. Um, you mentioned that, you know, Crusades are available in other areas. <laughs> you know, with, where else? So, um, okay, so the the longest, so, you know, we got the First Crusade, Second Crusade, Third Crusade, so there are a lot of numbered Crusades. But after the Third Crusade, before the Fourth Crusade, and indeed after the Fourth Crusade, because this is the longest running one-off campaign, is something called the Albigensian Crusade. And this was in, this was Northern France versus Southern France, and this was good Catholic. I mean, this is the thing, I'm using the term Christian. In, in Europe, at that time, if you're Christian, you're Catholic, okay? Um, yeah. And 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 so it gets complicated because the Byzantine Empire that was Orthodox Christian, and I'll come on to other Orthodox Christians in a moment. But in the south of France, there was a group called the Cathars who had a different view of Christianity, who did not see the Pope as being the ultimate authority of Christ on earth, and therefore, well, we don't like that. So they declared a crusade. And this one lasted a lot longer and was in many ways much bloodier than the ones in the Middle East. Indeed, famously, you see, the ones in the Middle East, at the, at the climax of the first crusade is they capture Jerusalem. And then these Christians carry out a frenzy of violence, an orgy of massacring the entire population of Jerusalem. I mean, literally, they're talking about the bridles of the horses covered in blood. That's how much murder and massacre was going on there mm. because they weren't they were foreign looking. OK, now they didn't know that there were Nestorian Christians or Orthodox Christians there or Jews who've got nothing to do with any of this stuff. Um, they just massacred everybody that looked foreign and everybody in Jerusalem in 1099 looked foreign. But the problem they came with in France is everybody kind of looks French. So when at the, at Bézier, this sort of uh, walled town, the crusaders went in and the Pope quite off, the Pope never went on crusade. He sent a minion, a, if you like, a captain yeah. of the Pope called a papal legate. And the papal legate, the, the, one of the soldiers turned to the papal legate at Bézier and said, what shall we do? We do not know who is, who is a heretic and who is a good Christian. And this is word for word what he said, kill them all for God shall know his own. In other words, if we massacre everybody, God will do like a filtration system in heaven. Heretics get put in hell. Good people, sorry, you died early. You get to be put in heaven. I mean, if that isn't a war crime, I don't know what is. And doesn't yeah. neatly fit this whole Muslim Christian narrative that, you know, the fundamentalists of both sides, you know, be it ISIS or a fundamentalist Christian in America, that doesn't fit the narrative at all. So everyone forgets about that crusade. The other crusades that completely get forgotten about is the Northern Crusades. So about 50 years into the crusading thing, everybody starts heading north. The very north of modern day Poland and into Estonia, at that time, that was the one area of Europe that still had pagans in it. They were called the Wends, W-E-N-D-S. They had magic soothsaying horses. But if that's ridiculous, hey, so's dying for your sins. And rising again three days later, you know, you believe what you want to believe. But um, these guys were attacked and massacred. And Estonia, which was a, a harbor for paganism in, in the early 11th, uh, early 12th century, I should say, 
by the end of the 12th century, there was a huge concentration of very devout Christians who wanted to kill everybody else. And they kept pushing east and kept pushing east. No more pagans. But now there's these Orthodox Christians and they're not proper Christians. So we, you know, literally hundreds of years. These continued after the fall of the Middle East. Hundreds of years spent in in places like modern day Belarusia, Ukraine. Sound familiar? Um, you know, Estonia and places like that where they're, you know, they're just carrying out massacre and to counter massacre on the local populations. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So these are somewhat examples of Christians fighting other Christians and Muslims fighting other Muslims. But are there any examples of the two sides coexisting or at least working together for a common goal? Yes, absolutely. Because the other, the third other important group in the conversation about the Crusades, and this is what I did my dissertation on at uh, university, um, is the Mongol Empire, which again, completely forgotten in the oh. modern day. It's like, oh, Christians, Muslims. Well, actually, anybody offended by Mongolia in the 21st century? No, because it's not an international threat, but it absolutely was in the 1200s. The Mongols created the second largest empire the world has ever seen, and it was the largest land-based empire the world has ever seen. So going to ISIS for a moment, they're, they're, they're big on the caliphate because the caliph was the, was the, basically the Pope of the Muslim world. But we know when the last caliph died. He died in 1258 when the Mongols came crashing into Baghdad. From about 800 AD till 1258 is called the Islamic Golden Age. Who's got the best medicine? Who's got the best science and mathematics um, and healthcare yeah. and bathing? It's all in the Middle East. Why did this end? Because the Mongols went in and massacred everybody. Baghdad is the one occasion where even the Mongols thought they might have gone a bit too far because the cobblestones were, were slippery with human fat. That's how bad it was in Baghdad. The minimum estimate is 300,000 people killed. And don't forget, this is before gas and guns and things like that. That's using, that's using swords and, and spears and arrows. That is a horrific level of massacre. And the last caliph who defied the Mongols, Mongols aren't going to stand for that. Uh, they mm. believe that anybody, any king, any leader, their blood must not spill onto the ground. So instead they rolled him up into a carpet and ran all their cavalry over him and crushed him to death that way. Uh, but, but that, so. Yeah. Isn't that the way we all want to go? Oh, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. It's what he would have wanted. <laughs> but, but, but you see, this is the thing that really annoys me. It's like the Mongol Empire, if you want to look at each century and who owned each century, like, you know, the 1800s, definitely that's the British century, for example. 
But the 1200s, that's definitely the Mongol century. And we're now writing them out of the Crusades. They then came crashing into the Middle East from Baghdad. And there was this moment, in, in, they'd also attacked Europe as well. They'd attacked places like Poland and Hungary and annihilated Christian armies. For, you know, it, the reason why they didn't come back was because there were richer pickings in China, not because yeah. they were scared of anything in Europe. But basically it's the 1260s now. And the Christian crusading states knew they stood no chance against the Mongols. But the, the Mamluks in Egypt, this new Muslim power of coming from Egypt, they did have an army that could possibly beat the Mongols. So the question was, do we allow this Muslim army that we have been fighting and really wants to knock us out, are we going to allow them to march through our lands unmolested to fight the Mongols, who were considered literally the devil's horsemen? Uh, when 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 mm. they crashed into Poland, it's alleged that when the Pope heard the news, he died of the shock. Well, he certainly died immediately after hearing the news. We don't know if it's specifically that or anything else. But the Mongols in the 1200s, the mid-1200s, were the existential threat that nobody could could deal with. I mean, they were undefeated until this battle between the Mamluks and the Mongols. It's called the Battle of Ain Jalut. It's one of the most important, pivotal battles in history that nobody knows anything about. And the Mamluks won. That is the first time the Mongols are defeated in a pitch battle. Now, it was a close-run thing. It was a very bloody thing. But finally, the Mongols are kind of put on pause. And from that point onwards, for the last, let's say, 30 years of fighting in the Middle East, sometimes the Christians were on the Muslim side. Sometimes the Christians actually went on the Mongol side against the Muslims. But we've now got a situation where the Christians are not these super unflexible Christian warrior blah, blah, blahs. No, they're, they're completely real politic. They will pick the side that's most likely to benefit them. Right. Thank you. I can't have a conversation with, about Crusades without a conversation about Richard the Lionheart, the worst king we almost never had, and frankly, my least favourite monarch. And I would rather have Henry VIII than Richard the Lionheart. The, the best thing Richard the Lionheart did was leave, closely followed by die. Now, when he goes off on the third, on the third crusade, you know, he takes a lot of opportunity to gain territory while en route to that crusade. You know, he stops off and invades Sicily. Uh, he, you know, invades Cyprus and then at some point later decides to sell Cyprus to the, to the Knights Templar. Was that sort of thing rife on a crusade? Was were, were other European monarchs using that as an opportunity to enrich themselves, enlarge their own political territories, and uh, and so forth? Okay, I am. I'm going to get a bit angry with you. I, I think he was an absolutely terrible king, but I think the worst king uh, in in British history has to be Edward II. I mean, this is a man who lost a civil war to his own wife. Uh, so I, I think that he's probably down there. I think the thing about Richard, though, because I get this question all the time, why is, so, why is he remembered so well when he was such an inefficient king? And the answer is because he's a good story, okay? There can be no doubt. He's he, also not Prince John. He, he, yes, he's not Prince John, but he won. Everyone likes a winner. He is a great general. He's definitely up there as a military leader. He was an abysmal administrator, uh, you know, he, ta you know, he famously said, I would sell London if only I could find a buyer. He couldn't speak English. You know, this, this you know, in every possible way, he, he sucked at kingship. Excellent, uh, excellent general. Definitely no doubt about that. But obviously the first crusade, 
was everything you just said. You know, they kept marching across across the Middle East and kept nicking bits and turning it into the, the Crusader states. On the Second Crusade, which was a, an abysmal failure, the one success is the English on the way to the, that crusade actually joined up with Spanish forces on the siege of Lisbon, obviously, you know, as the capital of Portugal, which at that time was Muslim, mm-hmm. and they helped win that battle. Uh, so, so without the help, uh, I mean, about half the army was, was English crusaders. So that tipped the balance there. And so it wasn't nicked on behalf of England, but if you like, it was nicked on behalf of the, the, of the Christians. Um, but actually Richard is kind of the last person who did that. And that's usually, be, uh, that's, I think that's largely because from Crusade 4 onwards, it's a law of very much diminishing returns. Although saying that, though, the Fourth Crusade never made it to the Middle East, but they did manage to capture Constantinople and nick that for about 50 years before the locals managed to nick it back again. So it did happen, but it, it you know, and, and Richard by no means is exceptional to, to this situation, but it didn't yeah. happen perhaps as often as we thought it did. So very much then, when somebody is going on crusade, particularly when somebody is leading a crusade, such as a monarch or a relatively high-ranking knight and so forth, then that that whole idea of we are the sword arm of God is very much in their mindset then. They're, they're not going to go, well, I've go- I'm going on a crusade and while I'm at it, I might nick a couple of southern French castles on the way. Yeah, that, I mean, that, again, that's like, if, if it happened to happen, great, uh, but it wasn't the primary goal. As we evolve, things get, you know, weirder. I mean, the, the thing about the Fourth Crusade, so basically, one of the things that Richard the Lionheart did genuinely uh, innovate is you've got someone like, I mentioned that Holy Roman Emperor, Frederick Barbarossa, he went on the Third Crusade the old-fashioned way. He went overland all the way from Germany on the way to Jerusalem. I don't care if you're doing that in a car in the modern day. That's going to be arduous, okay? Uh, And and he made it all the way to eastern Turkey. That was a hell of a journey for a man uh, of his age and stature. But what Richard did is like, well, we lose people on the way, so why don't we get into ships? So he got there quicker, faster, more efficient, which led to the Fourth Crusade going, let's only use ships. So they went to where? Who's got ships? The Venetians. The problem came is the Venetians went, this is going to be seriously expensive. You know, we're going to have to put all our ships, not trading, but to ship all your crusaders around. So this is going to cost. So when the crusade turned up, not enough crusaders turned up. They didn't have enough money to, to pay for the ships. The Venetians went, okay, we'll use the army then. And so the first place they attacked was a place in called Zara on the coast of modern day Croatia, which was a Christian yep. city. They were literally hanging banners off the, off the walls with crosses on saying, Hey, we're Christians. Stop attacking us, you crusaders. And the Pope, do you remember I said the whole thing about the Pope? You get to go to heaven. Well, the Pope excommunicated the, the crusade, which means you're definitely not going to heaven. So now we've got a bunch of people definitely going and not definitely going to heaven. Wow, that's a mess that you've got. So in the end, as I understand, you're not just you're not necessarily just not going to heaven. You can't actually receive a sacrament. No, you can't receive the sacrament if you're a good Christian. You're not even allowed to talk to them. So uh, they're not allowed in a castle. Sorry, not castle, a church. Uh, so yeah, this is an unholy mess, quite literally, for the crusade. Everybody calmed down. Basically, they said to the Pope, "Look, sorry about this, but we needed to keep the Venetians happy." And while they were at Zara, a guy had been ousted by the Byzantine Empire went, hey, if you install me as emperor, uh, I'll give you all the money you need and then you can go off to the to the Middle East. They go there, they try and install him, it goes wrong, they end up fighting with the locals and then they go, screw this, we're going to nick the whole thing. 
Um, and, and so, you know, this whole idea of like these glorious knights heading off to the Holy Land so that they can do pilgrimage to Jerusalem by the Fourth Crusade, it's kind of a nonsense, basically, and, and shows again, just saying crusade doesn't work. It's uh, you know, I, the, the other thing that annoys me on all the memes that again in the early two thousands. I see, I see your jihad and raise you a crusade. You, you do know we lost in the Middle East, right? You know, so <laughs> that, that, that doesn't make any sense. But also, compounding a jihad to a crusade is an idiotic, uh, um, you largely American thing. Saying, well, they're the same thing, and they're really not just to give you a bit of technicality. So if you're a strict Muslim, there is the greater and lesser uh, jihad. So spoonerism there. Greater and lesser jihad. The greater jihad is internal. Jihad literally means struggle. And this is a struggle to be a good Muslim, to not be tempted, to not drink alcohol, to make your prayers five times a day. Islam means the person who must submit This is about sort of like understanding that God is all powerful and I need to dedicate my life to him. And therefore praying five times a day to something that powerful and getting that attention is an honor. It shouldn't be an onerous, but let's face it, Mm -hmm. we're in the Middle East. It's hot and you might not want to go in the middle of the day to to the mosque and particularly hard during the, the, the month of Ramadan when you're not allowed to eat while the sun's up or take water on while the sun's up. It's a challenge. It's a struggle. So that is the greater jihad. The lesser jihad is the fight against infidels. And while we do get the concept of the idea of like rising up against Christian powers is actually far more modern. You know, you've got um, uh, there's like a very influential Islamic fundamentalist in the middle of the 20th century, a guy called Kutuz. He's the one who basically influenced the likes of Al Qaeda and and ISIS to start declaring jihad against, you know, the West or America or whatever. That was not what Saladin was doing. You do get reference to Mujahideen, which is something that Saladin was, and the various uh, um, Islamic rebels in Afghanistan in the 1980s. The Mujahideen literally means holy warrior, which you could translate into Christian terms as crusader. But it means that you've got God on your side. It does not mean that you are specifically super religious. Uh, and so therefore there is this conflation of this thing sounds similar to that thing. Therefore they're the same and they're not. So yeah, as we mentioned, the common outline of the crusades is often made through this 21st century simplistic viewpoint. So you keep saying that we've got to get into the mindset of a 12th century person going on crusade. How does he or she view that at that time? You know, what, what is that mindset? Well, it is largely he, sadly. Sorry, sorry, ladies. But the idea is about this religion seeped through the whole of society. And if we look at modern day America, are there some very devout uh, Christians in America? Absolutely. And we can start saying, well, the Pope was sort of political. Isn't it the same as sort of like Republican uh, Christians? Well, yes and no, in the sense that People couldn't get as outraged. And also everybody was illiterate. So the only form of information that you get, get is from the pulpit, from the, from the speaker. And the speaker might be talking about what the current Pope wants you to think. 
but it is always wrapped around the Bible rather than, and there was this constant friction between uh, the, the head of state and the head of the religion, uh, principally throughout the whole of Western Europe, there for about a hundred years, there was this thing called the investiture contest. And boy, what it boiled down to was who picks bishops? So bishops not are, are religious men. Pope should pick them. But the bishops own huge amounts of land and resource. King should pick them. And that argument, I don't have an exact uh, response to you, but, you know, whoever was at the ascendancy, was it the Pope excommunicating someone like uh, King John? Um, or some of the Holy Roman emperors as well? Or is it a case of the king, they got the upper hand and the popes in the middle of the whole papal schism? At one point, there was three different popes simultaneously in Europe. You can't have three popes. There was literally a pope and anti-pope. Um, and nobody knew who the anti-popes were until it was finally all reunified. And then they just are pretty arbitrarily decided that was the real pope then. That's the anti-pope there. Um, the whole of papal history is a mess. It's a, it's, it's far more interesting than most people think. It isn't just writing out endless scripts about, about the Bible. So yeah, so the point going all the way back is people believe they were going to hell and People wanted to go to church every Sunday. It was the community side of things, which we don't see quite. Um, I know there are big mega churches in places like Nigeria and America today, but they are tinged with this, you know, only, uh, only God would vote Republican. It's like, no, that would not happen in a church in the Middle, e Middle Ages. The community was the community. It was a support center for each other. They would give alms to the poor. They would, you know, they would want to know what was happening in the Middle East. And the other thing is that it, to, a, to a medieval mind, Jerusalem and heaven on earth were exactly the same thing. It was like an ecstasy to go there. And there is, mm -hmm. uh, I'll, I'll just throw this out there, there are two, two cities in the world that have a syndrome. There's Jerusalem syndrome and there's Paris syndrome, but that, actually they're very different. Jerusalem syndrome is some people go to Jerusalem and go nuts and think they are the new messiah. Uh, and they actually have a psychologist on hand uh, at a Jerusalem uh, hospital because it happens so frequently. It, like businessmen like me might go and I'm going there to do the day job. But while I'm there, I'm looking out at the, at the landscape and going, oh, my God, it turns out I'm the second coming of Jesus. I'm going to strip off all my clothes and wrap the bed towel around me and, uh, and uh, bed clothes around me. And I'm going to start preaching. It's like, yeah, quick, get the psychologist. That's Jerusalem syndrome. Paris syndrome is my favorite. That's the complete underwhelming feeling that Asians, particularly from China and Japan, they, they saved up all this money. They're going to go to Paris. It's the city of angels. It's the city of romance. They turn up and went, oh, it's covered in dog shit like everywhere else. Oh, how disappointing. And this sort of profound de deflation of, of like, oh, Paris is like any other city, really. It is lovely. Great mm. museums and cafes, but it's not heaven on earth. So I guess you could say that the, the Chinese tourists are a bit like medieval Christians that they think that Jerusalem is heaven on earth, uh, except that the Christians were genuinely ecstatic when they went to Jerusalem. Uh, this sort of amazing sort of continued, um, I was going to say um, uh, sort of like renovation of their religious beliefs, but they already had them, but it's sort of expansion of religious beliefs. And and so the fact... The reinforcement of yeah, reinforcement. religious beliefs. The, the, the fact is that the... It, the, the reality is that Christianity was nothing to be ashamed of, nothing to fight about. It was as normal as having lunch. 
in in the Middle Ages. And, you know, fighting for God was not a weird idea. And uh, but at the same time, we did take things from the Islamic world and, and reintroduce them into Europe because they were good ideas. So to start to wrap things up a little, what would you like to see done to combat this view of the Crusades? Well, I'd like them to be taught again. I'm one of the last people to have a GCSE in medieval history. You know, when people talk about what should we show in, in history at school, uh, what I keep being told whenever I do history talks or, you know, uh, you know, somebody stumbles across the, the podcast is people say, I really wish you would be my history teacher. And I think the problem is, look, there's no doubt that like the Industrial Revolution is, has shaped modern day Britain. There's no doubt about it. It's really dull. And, you know, whereas you teach the little kids ancient Egypt, it's like that is really interesting, but it's got literally nothing to do with either Britain or why we're Britain today. And so, you know, we got so much history. It is hard to fit it all in. But if, but I think at the moment, if we are going to talk about religious tolerance and religious differences, then put talking about the Crusades, about what they were and what they weren't. And the fact that the sixth crusade, there was no fighting. The uh, uh, Frederick II, the Holy Roman Emperor, turned up in the Middle East and he negotiated with the Muslims the return of Jerusalem. There was no fighting on the Sixth Crusade. Now, he was heavily condemned for that, for not fighting any Muslims. But, you know, even in the First Crusade, there was negotiation between both sides. You never get anybody so religiously zealous that they can't even talk to the other side. And I think that this sort of you know, the more we understand about different religions and where all religions have gone wrong, because the weird thing about the Crusades is the one thing that ISIS and a, a fundamentalist Christian in America can agree on is that the Crusades were the good old days because they kicked each other's butts. Um, and to be fair, the Muslims won more often than the Europeans did. So of course they're going to kind of look back on it as a, as a good, as the good old days. But I, yeah, it's this sort of taking the heat out taking the analogies out and saying that this was a very different time, very different place, but what can we learn from this? The fact that we like putting pepper on our food is because the Crusaders got the taste for pepper and imported it back to Europe. Thank you very much, Jem. That's widened my horizons in an area that, beyond having a passionate hatred of Richard the oh-so-dreamy Lionheart, <laughs> I really have much in the area of expertise. So so thank you very much for uh, for bringing what is basically 700 years of rage to our podcast this evening. My absolute pleasure. And I feel, I feel better. Told you. Yes. Told you. you Exercise. I believe, Paul, I believe. (laughs) Well, if you'd like to know more about Jem's work, then you can start by reading his excellent range of books, all of which will be linked to in the History Rage bookshop. Uh, You can follow him on Facebook by searching for History Gems and on Twitter at Jem Daduchu. And you can listen to the Condensed Histories podcast as well on all major platforms. And we're going to have links to all of those in the show notes. But once again, Jem, thank you very much for being on History Rage. Pleasure, guys. Thank you for having me. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Baffle. And I'm at Kyle G History. And if you've enjoyed our work, then please subscribe to us on Patreon as your £5 per month will get you early episodes and the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash History Rage. But until next week, thanks a lot for listening. Stay angry. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.